So these days we've had together have been very much about cultivating meditation practice. Immersing ourselves in meditation practice. And it takes some real uh, courage, really, to do that. Most people can't even see the point of this kind of activity. It's rare, the person that can see the point. And yet, even of those people who can see the point, of those people who say, oh yes, meditation, that's a good thing. Those people who would like to meditate. I'd love to, I really keep meaning to go on a retreat. We hear people say. Of those people who appreciate the value of meditation, it's only a rare person among those who's actually willing to do the mucky old work of facing one's inner life. It takes courage to come into this kind of environment and put oneself rather nakedly in front of one's own life. To be willing to put aside the usual um, coping mechanisms, the usual defences, the usual distractions that we use to stay in some kind of narrow comfort zone. So there's a great beauty, depth, richness in this kind of practice, which some of you are very much in touch with in your lives and that's why you come here. And for some of you have maybe begun to discover that, discover the potential for that, discover your own potential for training the mind, for understanding life deeply in this short few days we've had together. But when so much emphasis is on meditation practice, the danger is there that we might conceive of the whole of spiritual practice, the whole of Dharma practice, the whole of a path of awakening, a path of freeing our lives as being just about meditation. We have to see to, for ourselves what, what is our practice? Is it something that happens for um, when, whenever we remember or when we can be bothered? Or is it something that happens for 20 minutes at the beginning of the day? or whatever our, our rhythm or program is. Because if it is, if, medita- if, if what our practice of awakening is, is just meditation, you know, what about the other 23 and a half hours of the day? Or the other 22 and a half, or however long you may spend in meditation? I was recently talking to somebody this week who was in a kind of painful situation having just separated from her partner after five years. And one of the things she said was, I don't understand. We both 
did our practice. We so, so how come the relationship failed? We, but we're both kind of interested in looking at our stuff. We both do yoga, we both meditate. We should have been able to work it out. Unfortunately, it takes more than meditating to work out the stuff of our lives. It's a shame, isn't it? It would be great if meditation was the panacea for all ills. We, we really love that idea of a panacea, of a cure-all, you know, snake oil. You know, snake oil is this, uh, like in the, wet, in the wet west of America, they'd have snake oil salesmen or some kind of latest thing that people would hawk around. And the, the cures, the, the claims for what it could cure would be kind of greatly exaggerated. And we still see that now. You see that in New Age magazines. You see that with some kind of uh, therapies. You see that with meditation. The idea that if you do this, basically all manner of things in your life will be fine. But life really isn't uh, set up to be fine for us. This is the first noble truth that we looked at last night. That life is hard, that it's not always fine. And yet the tendency is, if we haven't understood this truth, to have some kind of desperate longing for it to be fine. And something that seems, we, we catch the fact that there's some beauty, or potency, or richness in something like meditation. And because of our desperation, we try to apply that to if I, if I just meditate, if I really meditate, if I meditate every morning, then everything will be fine. I'll be able to dwell in peace and joy and non-reactivity. We come to a weekend like this, or we come to even a much longer retreat, and we may well touch into places of deep, very beautiful peace, joy, non-reactivity, expansiveness, love, intimacy with ourselves, intimacy with others, intimacy with life in general. We feel, wow, the preciousness of life and its touch, our connection with that. May we get in touch with the such what the Buddha called the suchness, the immediacy, the vibrancy, the way it isness of things, and have some sense of the whatever is going on, wherever we are, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whether it's what I'd like or whether what I'd not like, whatever particular state that the mind is in at the moment. This is it. I feel very inspired by that. And then 
this afternoon or tomorrow or next week or at some point life kind of comes crashing back in on us at work or in our relationship or with our families and suddenly all that spaciousness all that equanimity all that peace all that capacity to just be with it where where did it go? to go and do another meditation retreat then I'll really get it so I certainly would really encourage you to practice meditation it's a wonderful tool it's the you know as I was saying last night no presence no capacity for steadiness and clarity and the capacity to really look into our experience then not much chance for real transformation. And nothing develops presence, steadiness and insight like meditation practice does. But we have a whole life off of our cushions. So when we're in a meditation retreat like this, the emphasis, of course, is very much on meditation practice. But what we're developing is that capacity for presence. The rest of our life is about applying that presence. Another way of saying it is what we're developing is skill with our states of mind. The way we respond to states of mind. The kind of states of mind we orientate towards. The kind of states of mind that are made likely by giving care and attention to our experience. But we also really need to give care and attention to how those states show up in the world, what we do with them in the realm of being with ourselves, being with other people, being in life in general. And lots of things can be helpful with that. They don't have to be meditation. They don't have to come in a Buddhist packaging. They don't have to come in any kind of spiritual packaging at all. But I would say a life of transformation is really awake to looking for those possibilities, looking for what makes a difference, what contributes to wisdom, to kindness, to clarity. So, like with the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha had a model for this. And the Fourth Noble Truth, as I mentioned last night, was that there's a way to cultivate this. And it's the most classic teaching of the Buddha is the Eightfold Path, which is usually translated as wise understanding, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise lifestyle, wise effort wise mindfulness and wise concentration which of course just sounds like a list in fact when I was in India after the first couple of years my grandfather wrote me a letter saying I know all about Buddhism why is this and why is that 
And then he wrote, come back to the safe fold of Christianity. One religion is more than enough. He wrote. So that's what the Eightfold Path can sound like, right? Why is this and why is that? Write this. It's sometimes called right understanding, right intention. Sounds like a list. It's actually a kind of a map, if that's not too cliched, of the areas to attend to in our life where we easily go unconscious. And the areas in our life that not only do we go unconscious in that, but that if we're unconscious in them, they exercise a drag on our freedom. That they support our inertia, they support our unhealthy habits, they support our blindness, they support our greed, our negativity, our confusion. So I'd like to look at them a little bit this afternoon. Not in terms of their historical perspective as the Eightfold Path, but in terms of areas of our life that we're invited to attend to. And as I, as I explore them, if there are examples from your life that seem relevant or things that you're not sure about or things that you would like me to clarify or would like to question, please feel free just to raise your hand and ask. The word summer in Pali usually translates as right or wise. It's the prefix for these things. Samaditi. Summer this, summer that, right this, right that. And it, it doesn't really mean right. It means more like the development of, the cultivation of, the bringing to fruition of. We could say in contemporary language, we could say working with. Bit of a free translation, but that's okay. So working with our understanding, working with our intentions, etc. We basically have a kind of a Judeo-Christian understanding of the world. We just do, regardless of whether we experience ourselves as religious or not, regardless of whether we grew up in any kind of religious um, family or not. Had any kind of religious education or not? We kind of our worldview is shaped by the Abrahamic religions. I think they're called you know, the the worldview that comes out of the Middle East, basically beginning with Judaism, then bits of that turning into the Christian tradition, and then bits of that coming out as the uh, Muslim tradition. But basically, the idea, and as, as I say, I would say it's a personal view that it's irrelevant whether we believe in any of that stuff or not. We have a sense of a one God that we choose to believe in or not. And we have a sense of a one life. And then we have a sense of either heaven or hell or nothing at the end of it. And that, that is our worldview. And we may have chosen to adopt a different worldview, materialistic, scientific worldview, or Eastern religion worldview, a worldview where there's many different kinds of heavens and hells, or a view of uh, many different lives, etc. But I think it's, it's interesting to really explore the fact that that's our, our basic understanding, 
We've just been acculturated into that view because of the part of the world we live in, basically, and the way our uh, the way church and state is set up. So when the Buddha talks about right view or right understanding or working with our understanding, it's really about there's something very valuable in, first of all I would say, making the fact that that's the worldview I start with, that's my conditioning, making that conscious. And then reflecting on that. Reflecting on our understand the way we understand life to be, and there's some wonderful resources in terms of reading. Reading philosophy, reading Buddhist teachings. If we have some sense of a draw to Buddhist teachings, reading and reflecting in the light of our own deepest intuition. We have some deep intuition about the way life is, even if we don't know how life is, even if we can't put it into words, we have some deep intuition, otherwise we wouldn't be here. We have some intuition that there's something profound, extraordinary, ultimate in life. And religious authorities will tell us what that is. Our own background, our families, our education will have suggested what that is and our own world view will have an an opinion about what that is but to really work with our understanding means to explore and reflect so some of the books that I've put on my book list on the notice board deal with this wider context certainly in terms of Dharma of Dharma teachings and particularly now, I think there's some really, really interesting stuff happening in terms of world views and the understanding of things. Because more than ever before, we've got access to all these different world views. And some people, but I think of Ken Wilber particularly, doing amazing work in looking at all different world views and looking for the commonalities between them and actually exploring our understanding of the way life is. And certainly for myself, one of the main resources for insight and understanding for me has been in terms of view, understanding, reflecting on what I hear, what I read, what I'm told in terms of teachings, and kind of checking it against to see what resonates. One of the, the Buddha gave a list of resources for understanding. And one of the, they were reflecting on Dharma, meditating on Dharma, hearing the Dharma, teaching the Dharma, and contacting with nature. So all of those already, and the contact with nature I'll speak about a bit more later on. But that sense of hearing the Dharma, or reading the Dharma, same thing, hearing truth, reading truth, engaging with truth, even if we don't know, is this true or not? Engaging with it and seeing what resonates and being willing to make a conscious exploration of our, of our understanding. Sometimes spiritual practices and teachings can be a little bit anti-intellectual, as if there's something terribly wrong with thinking. 
and we've just got to feel how it is. And there's a, there's a great validity to learning to trust our felt sense of things rather than just get caught up in thinking about. But our capacity for understanding, for reflecting, for exploring, is also an extraordinary capacity. So reading, reflecting, exploring, as a spiritual practice, as a real support for our own waking up, for our own understanding of how life is. And if you feel confused and unable to understand how life is, then all the more reason to engage with others who aren't so confused. You know, there's some pretty unconfused beings who've written some really great stuff. Okay. Intentions. problem is with the Eightfold Path, when I start to talk about it, I get lots and lots of inspiration. So I could be here all afternoon and you'll all miss your trains. Or you'll all flee and I'll just be talking to myself. So I try to keep it simple. I'll try to keep it practical as well. Somebody asked me yesterday about intention. And... You know, we, we, have, we can come to an environment like this and feel very inspired to meditate, inspired to give up our bad habits, inspired to, to oh yes, he says, read and reflect on Dharma, that's what I'm going to do. Off with the TV, on with the weighty tomes of philosophy. And yet our intentions get hijacked. So many people leave retreat with the intention to meditate and then come back to retreat a few months later with the story of how they didn't manage. So we can engage with, work with our intentions. And one of the best ways to do that, there's two things I'd like to say about that. One is to engage, to really be aware of our intention with something before, during and after. So if you got if you find you just have this tendency to go unconscious in, and kind of in the evening and just kind of watch the TV like that, as and nod off before you put the TV on. It's not to I don't want to kind of have any view about whether one should or shouldn't watch TV. But before you put it on, just take a moment to check in with your intentions. What are you really wanting from it? What does it give you? What's the pull? What's the allure? What's it really underneath, oh, I want to see that program about such and such. What is it that you want from that? What, in other words, what's the intention? What's the pull? And then during, what's it giving you, this activity? And then afterwards, what happens? To, to notice, do you feel satisfied? Or do you feel unhappy with yourself? Do you give yourself a hard time? I shouldn't have watched that TV program. I should have meditated. For example. Not as a way to see whether you're doing right or wrong, but as a way to get to know the way your intentions work so that they're not, rather than being unconscious ones that drag you along, they start to become something that we use to deepen our understanding. 
of ourselves, of our life, deepen our understanding of the things that get a grip on us. Another thing with intentions, in terms of cultivating the intention to meditate or the intention to do any other kind of um, thing that we know would be good for us. There's plenty of things we could find which we know would be good for us. But that we can have crap record at doing. And often it's because we make very unrealistic intentions. I wonder if you're going away from this retreat thinking, right, I'm going to meditate every day. I wonder how many retreats you've gone away from thinking, right, I'm going to meditate every day. And some people find just find themselves able, in which case it's no big deal to, to have a steady daily rhythm of practice. And it feels every bit as normal and as necessary as having a wash in the morning. You know, we take care of bodily hygiene with showering and we take care of our mental hygiene by just really you know, centering ourselves a bit in the morning. But for others, it can really be a struggle. And so whatever area of life it is in, meditation or something else, if there's something that you recognize, it would be really helpful, really useful, really worthwhile for me to do that. Then it's really worth being skillful about your intentions with that. Unskillful intention is, I'm going to do that. Right. It's just too vague. It's why the classic New Year's resolutions fail so badly. So I, I would like to just model an intention for you with regard to meditation. But it can be applied to anything. The important thing, is, I think, is that it should be precise, realistic and time-bound. Precise means exactly what are you committing to. So, uh, re- so realistic, first of all. I want to, I'm going to meditate. I want to meditate. Every day, let's face it, it might sound, you know, one has to see for oneself, but it might not be realistic. But you can find, if you really check in with yourself, something that's, yes, a bit of a stretch, but that really feels manageable. And you say, okay, well, five days a week. And I'm a little reticent as I model this because I don't want you to think five days. For some, every day is fine. For some, two days a week feels like a a huge commitment. So there's nothing in the numbers. It's about finding your way to something that's realistic. How many days a week is realistic? Precise. For how long are you going to sit? And time-bound that you commit to for like two weeks. So for the next two weeks... I'll sit for so many minutes, so many days a week. And then check in. Does, how does that feel? Does it feel like, oh my God, it's going to be so tough? In which case, it's not realistic. And then it feels like something that's, yes, a bit of a stretch, but that's something that really feels doable. Much better to set a kind of a lower goal and make it than to set some great lofty ideal and fail. One of my teachers calls this, you know, setting some intention and then failing to follow through on it. She called castrating your will. Doesn't sound good, does it? <laughs> so to find to work, working with intentions in such a way that they realistic, 
precise and time-bound so that you can actually follow through with that. So as I go through these points, I'm trying to find ways that make these things really applicable in our life. I would be really... I would, I would be concerned if I felt you were going away from this retreat thinking that all we have to offer is meditation. So working with our understanding, with our intentions, with our speech. Lots of ways to work with speech. And just to see just to to be attentive to what we say how we say it why we say it what our motivation is for saying it and you could take it as a practice during some day think of today as a way of staying in touch as a way of cultivating presence I'd really really be interested in what I say and how much of it is true and useful and whether I'm saying it to just fill up space or whether I'm saying it because I'm really interested I don't have time to go into lots of the complexities but to use what and how and why one speaks as a source of contemplation and as a source of you know, the extraordinary power that's there in speech to express kindness, to express support, to express appreciation. And how much beauty that can bring. How much gladness, how much brightness we can bring in the world for ourselves and others through using our speech to express kindness. Appreciation, support. Even when it's in saying things that are difficult or unpleasant to say, you can express the difficult things with kindness, with appreciation and understanding. And the Buddha talks working with what's usually translated as effort. Old translation from a couple of generations ago, right effort. Interesting when one goes back to the Pali, right means more like the bringing to fulfillment of. And the word for effort, I don't know how free a translation is this, but a German friend who's a Pali scholar says that the meaning in the Pali is more like Problem solving, a creative approach to problem solving. So it's a very different flavour, right effort, as one translation, or developing or working with one's creative approach to problem solving. <laughs> as another translation. The Buddha gives four examples. He talks about Looking to see what are you doing that's unhelpful and stopping doing it. Looking at what you're doing 
that's helpful and keep on doing it. Looking at what you're not doing that's unhelpful and don't start doing it. <laughs> and look at what you're not doing that is, would be helpful and start doing it. Very pragmatic. <laughs> As a way to reflect. You know? And then what I was talking about, about working with intentions, is actually a way to follow through on that. A way of following through on abandoning the unhelpful, the unwholesome, the unhealthy, and supporting the wholesome, the helpful, the healthy. I missed out two in the list. Okay. After speech, I jumped to effort, missing out action. Wise action. Working with your actions in the world. I think two and a half thousand years ago, teaching about interconnection was kind of radical and extraordinary teaching. And in, and in the kind of cultural situation we find ourselves in, even though our deep embodied understanding of interaction may not be there, it's certainly something that needs to be seen experientially as an insight, as an embodied experience, recognising the way that life is all one thing, if you like. That our own being is fundamentally included in life. But even if we don't have it so clear, or even if we don't have it clear in that way, on a more, kind of just a, sense, a relational or an intellectual way, we have a different sense of interconnection than people have ever had before. When I think of the picture of the earth, it's so obvious to us that that's what our planet looks like and that's where we all live. But if you think that that picture was only um, available to us from, when was it, 68, 69? No one knows. I think it was 68. No one knows. It was 68. <laughs> So in 1968, they, you know, they went to space and took this picture of the Earth. And it's very moving, actually, the, the description of the astronauts who took this picture. And they described for the first time ever people being able to see the Earth from far away and what they were so shocked and touched by the fact that they saw a, a world without borders. They saw a world without nations. They saw a world that just looked like home to them. And there's this very moving description that I, I read, somebody showed me, of one of the astronauts talking about this, and how it, uh, it deeply affected the rest of his life. And that it deeply called into question a lot of his, his just kind of the assumptions, a lot of the world view he'd grown up with. And it's kind of very commonplace for us to think of ourselves as one planet, even though we're capable of falling into divisiveness and uh, distinction and, and separation. We have some sense of the interconnectedness in which we live. And the kind of worldwide political situation and the worldwide ecological situation remind us of that again and again. And we have an extraordinary power in terms of the way we act in the world. And what 
we're supporting when we act in the world. What we're supporting with how we spend money. What we're supporting with the way we show our kind of um, political views. To actually reflect on that, to take that on board as a spiritual practice, as a practice of transforming the world, as a practice of transforming ourselves, which is actually the same thing. Suddenly, even as I speak, these different areas, suddenly the arena of our practice, the arena of our engagement in the world, can start to seem vast. Limitless in its possibilities. Working with our lifestyle is another. Linked to action. But, you know, the kind of work we do, the way we live, the way we choose to spend our free time, the kind of social relationships that we maintain, the way we maintain our family relationships. They call. Sometimes people are content to practice a little meditation and to kind of integrate that into the way their lives are going on. And that's fine. But sometimes one feels the a kind of a deeper calling than that. One feels like I want to give myself as fully and deeply and passionately as possible to exploring life in this way. I remember just before I first went to India. I was in Egypt and somebody said to me, oh, if you go to India, it'll turn your life upside down. And I said, yes. And sure enough, it did. So when people ask often, how how do I bring the Dharma into my life? There are plenty of ways. Meditating in the morning might be a way to bring the Dharma into my life. Reading inspirational books could be a way to bring Dharma into my life. Going to some sitting group certainly can be a way to bring Dharma into my life. But sometimes, for some of us, it's not enough. Some of us have to turn the question around and say, how do I bring my life into the Dharma? How do I align every area of my life with the way things are? So that every condition of our life is a support for awakening. And that may involve, if we feel that kind of pull, may well involve um, some kind of tough questions about how I spend my life, who I spend it with, what I'm really supporting. Because whatever we're supporting, whatever we're feeding, that's what will grow. Whatever we feed, that's what will grow. 
So we have to ask ourselves, what do we really want to support? What are we willing to change in order to support that which is most beautiful, most important, most authentic? And then the last two aspects of the Eightfold Path, working with awareness and with concentration, those are the bits that really concern themselves with cultivating presence in the midst of all our activities, staying centred in ourselves and training the mind. And so there's training the mind in terms of formal meditation in the way that we've been doing these days. And there's cultivating mindfulness, presence, which isn't at all specific to what posture we're in, isn't specific to the speed we're moving at, isn't specific to whether we're silent or talking. A willingness again and again to rein in your attention and come back to where you are. And just that, even if you feel like you're practicing it in ways that are kind of... um, don't seem to be bearing much fruit. The consistent willingness to come back to where you're at, to embody your attention, will start to transform your life in unimaginable ways. The willingness to bring your attention back, to to embody your presence, to be sensitive to where you're at, starts to transform your life in unimaginable ways. Unimaginable because all the while our minds are going here and there without, with no training, with no power, with no strength, with no brightness. That's what we're used to. We can't imagine the kinds of capacities, the kinds of subtlety, the kind of sensitivity, the kinds of intuition, the kinds of deep understanding that start to be available to us the more we find ourselves able to be present. We can't imagine how bright awareness can be. We can only experience that as our own capacities grow. We can't imagine. But we can engage we can cultivate we can know for ourselves that kind of brightness that kind of transformation of our life and the freedom that's at its heart and whatever our lifestyle and whatever um we think of our time or our energy or our capacity or our history whatever story we've got about our life these aspects that I've mentioned hopefully are ways in which if we wish, if we're sincere if we feel this call of authenticity we can make a real difference for the sake of life our own lives, 
the lives of all those we have contact with the life that's all around and within us and if these days and the sincerity and goodness of your practice in being here over these days are in the service of that then it's time very well spent So in closing together, I want to just appreciate all of you in terms of your willingness to be here, in terms of the goodness of your practice. I want to wish you very well in continuing to explore life. And I want to wish you the fruits of this practice. And the sure heart's release. A life that's truly open and free. May it be so. Let's feel the quality of attention that's in the room. The quality of aligned intention. Practice and teachings. Freedom's unstoppable. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.